Isaiah 51.1 says, Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. This morning, we are coming to the last message in our sermon series called Look to the Rock, in, in which we've been walking through what it is that makes covenant covenant. Three weeks ago, I began our sermon series by showing you some video clips that I took up at Ketlin Quarry, and I brought you there to remind you that every rock that's cut from the same quarry will have the same sort of quality, the same texture, the same look and feel as every other rock that's cut from that quarry because it resembles the rock from which it was cut itself. And that is certainly true for us as a church family. Every person in this church is unique. At the same time, every man, every woman, every young person who is part of this church is marked by a certain quality, a certain something that we all share together in common. And it is our shared beliefs, our shared calling, our shared values, and our shared posture that make that true of us. This morning, when you walked in, you received a summary of these things that we've been talking through over these four weeks. And this morning, we come to the last of those, what I am calling our primary posture. It captures the most basic way that we are oriented toward God and toward one another. And that is with a posture of Christ-like humility. In some ways, I suppose that you could think of this as kind of the, the, the chief and crowning virtue that crowns our beliefs and our calling and our values. And it is one that has been held up by the church for 2,000 years as being the greatest of all Christian virtues. In about the year 400, Augustine wrote, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is still humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. You know this. Outside of the gracious intervention of Jesus in my life, my posture toward others will inevitably be one of self-importance and my posture toward God will be one of self-reliance. But when Jesus collides with us, something fundamental shifts in us as human beings. And a, a new posture, a new orientation is formed in us. A posture of humility that mirrors his own. Let me take you back with me to Kentland Quarry for a moment this morning. Some of you already know what makes this quarry unique. It is the site of the fourth largest meteorite strike within the bounds of the United States. At some point millions of years ago, a meteorite that some scientists believe was half a mile across slammed into the ground 41 miles northwest of here. Scientists believe that that meteor was traveling 60 miles per second when it hit the ground. That's from here to Indianapolis in one second. It was going so fast that when it hit the ground, it completely vaporized. And when it hit, it struck the earth with up to 4 million pounds of pressure per square inch. That is two fully lo loaded super tanker cargo ships 
balanced on one little square inch of ground. It's that much weight. The meteorite left a crater that was 12 miles in diameter with a central impact zone that is more than four miles across. And the forces involved were absolutely overwhelming, beyond really what we can fathom. First, the meteorite shoved the solid limestone rock bed down almost a half a mile, and then it rebounded uh, back up and created a, a solid rock cone that was more than 1,000 feet high, which was later sheared off by the glaciers that came along. The rock strata in the quarry are at all kinds of crazy angles. All of these horizontal levels that were, that were laid down over time have been knocked at all angles, and some of them stand vertically now inside the quarry. But here's the thing that's really striking about this. The impact of the meteorite not only relocated the rock, it transformed it. When it hit, it altered the structure of the rock itself, creating a whole new kind of rock. It was actually at Kentland Quarry that geologists that first identified and named this rare kind of rock that's called a shatter cone. And it's a type of rock that is only formed under the incredible pressure that comes from either a meteorite strike or, since 1959, an underground nuclear explosion. This beautiful rock up here on the platform is a shatter cone from Kentland Quarry. We'll put a picture up so you can see it while you wait, uh, and then you can come dashing up after the service and take a closer look at it. Listen to this description of a shatter cone. Shatter cones form when the shock wave from a meteorite impact travels down into the rock layers below. The intense pressure cracks the rock in a branching pattern, leaving cone-shaped chunks pointing toward the center of the impact. The tiny ridge lines radiating from the tip of that cone are imprints of the shattering shock wave frozen into the rock's surface. Isn't that incredibly cool? Well, some of us think that's incredibly cool. Okay, so here's the point of all, all of this geology. When we have a life-altering, life-saving collision with Jesus, everything in us changes. Our very nature is altered by that encounter. Our entire life reorients itself toward him. And from that point forward, everything in our life points to him. In John 8, 23, Jesus says to people in the crowd who did not receive his message, who didn't accept who he was, he says, you are from below, I am from above, you are from this world, but I am not of this world. But then in John chapter 17, as he is praying to his father about those who have become his followers, he talks about the transformation that has happened in their lives. He says, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Make them distinctive by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Humility may be the least definable and yet the most discernible of all of the qualities that are meant to mark us as followers of Jesus. It's the quality of being not of this world, just like Jesus was not of this world. Last fall, I called the city uh, to have someone come over and look at an erosion issue that we have connected to a storm drain in our ravine. 
and they sent out a project engineer named Jeffrey. Within three minutes, I knew that he was a fellow follower of Christ, and not because of any specific thing that he said. He just had this unique quality of humility about him. It came through in the way that he introduced himself to me. It came through in the way that he looked me in the eye as he spoke. It came through in the way that he, he carried himself with a gentleness of soul. It came through in the way that he listened as he asked me questions. It came through in the way that he, he followed up in a, in a it's not about me sort of way after our, our meeting. There is a counterfeit version of Christianity out there that says it doesn't matter if your life changes. When you become a believer, all that matters is that you are forgiven and that you are promised an eternity with Jesus. But that's a distortion of Christianity. It is a truncation that is hardly recognizable when held up against the teaching of Scripture and its expectation of a changed life when we encounter Jesus. There's another counterfeit version that seems closer to the real thing, but it isn't either. It's the version that says being a Christian is about trying hard, trying hard to imitate Jesus, trying hard to live a life that pleases God. It's a life of exertion, but that's flawed too. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. At the heart of following Jesus is the offering and opening of our lives to him. Inviting and allowing him by his spirit to transform us from the inside. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation, not relocation, not exertion, is what lies at the heart of any biblically faithful understanding of the Christian life. Transformed into what? We don't have to guess. We are told again and again in Scripture. Look at just this cluster of passages that all communicate the same thing. Transformed into what? His likeness. Jesus is doing nothing less than forming his likeness in the lives of those who follow him. But we can get even more specific than that. What is the core quality that Jesus intends to replicate in us, again, we don't have to guess. I pointed out before that there are two key words that Jesus uses to describe his own heart, heart posture. He uses them in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's just take a minute to remind ourselves of what these two words mean. The first of these that's translated gentle is about what we do with the whole collection of self-concerned needs and desires and ambitions that rise up within our hearts. Does God have the last word or do they? This word was used in the, in the ancient world to describe tame animals rather than wild ones and benevolent rulers rather than despotic ones. It means laying down whatever has us scheming and scrambling to serve ourselves, releasing, yielding, acquiescing, rather than taking things into our own hands and insisting that things go our way. 
At the heart of gentleness is my confidence that my heavenly father knows and will meet my every need. So I don't need to clamor taking the meeting of my needs or my desires into my own hands. Gentleness is the peace and the self-control that remain after I have laid down, offered up my self-serving desire, trusting God to be the one who meets my needs. And that leads directly to the other word that Jesus uses to describe himself, humble of heart. That means seeing God and others rightly, God in his glory and others in his image, and then seeing ourselves in our right place and our true proportion before God and others. The spirit of humility or lowliness results not from seeing ourselves as worthless, but from seeing God as glorious and worthy of our worship and others as splendid bearers of the image of God and deserving of our honor and service. In the end, this quality of humility is really about looking past ourselves. The eyes of the humble are not on the self at all. Humility of heart is the self-forgetfulness that remains after I lay down my self-importance and I turn my eyes up to God and out to others. Evelyn Underhill captures the heart of humility perfectly when she writes this. The primary thing I believe that will be of use is a conception as clear and rich and deep as you are able to get it, first, of the splendor of God and next, of our own souls over against that splendor of God. And last, of the sort of interior life that your election to his service demands. The attitude of Jesus captured in these two words is remarkable. As God with us, he had every right and every reason to elevate himself. Insisting on his own rights, pushing his needs forward, putting himself above others, but he didn't. Trusting the Father with his needs, offering his freedoms and rights back to him, he lived a life opened up toward the Father and out toward others. I am awed, I'm awed, yes, but I am awed and challenged and unsettled to discover that God means for these same qualities that mark Jesus to shape the posture of my own heart. The Bible is unequivocal in this. Using the same two words that Jesus used to describe himself, Paul writes this. As a prisoner to the Lord then, or for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus' humble attitude, his inner orientation of descent, his outward orientation toward God and toward others rather than being bent in upon himself, this is to be ours as well. Our attitude is to mirror, our posture is to mirror his own. And this same invitation, this same expectation is communicated everywhere you turn in the New Testament, including in most of the key passages that talk about, that describe what the Christian life is meant to look like. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with humility and gentleness. James, in James 3, 13 to 17, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Peter, in 1 Peter 
Chapter 5, verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. You can see why the ancients identified this as the crowning Christian virtue. If we are his followers, Jesus' project is to replicate his humility in us. I am incapable of forming that heart attitude in myself, but God can do what I can, what I can't, if I invite him and if I allow him. I love this line from Robert Murray McShane. He wrote it in his journal. Oh, but for true, unfeigned humility. I know I have cause to be humble, and yet I don't know one half of that cause. And I know that I am proud, and yet I don't know the half of that pride. For all of us, even the most godly among us, humility will only be partially formed in us in this life. And if we are honest with ourselves, there is often as large a part of us that resists God's work of forming humility in us as there is that invites that work and cooperates with it. It is painful to lay down our self-concern. It's painful to think of others first. It's difficult for us to lay down our version of how we think life should look and embrace the one that God has for us. But God's desire is that the men and the women and the young people who bear the name of Jesus would also be marked by the humility of Jesus. And the way that we pursue Christ-like humility is not to try to muster it up in ourselves, but to admit our lack of it, even our lack of desire for it, and then to invite God by his spirit to form this quality in us. One of the things that can make that especially difficult is that we live in a life, uh, we live in a world that doesn't know what to make of humility and that prizes self-important rights and freedoms instead. Humility was held in contempt by the ancient Greeks and Romans. For them, the greatest virtue was the opposite of humility. um, The virtue that that they described as megalosuchia, which literally means the great self. Thinking highly of yourself, taking pride in your personal honors, achievements, and successes. And our surrounding world is no different. The Greco-Roman elevation of self is the reigning outlook in Western culture. It is in the very water that we drink and into this view of self, the Christian faith with its humility runs headlong. But because of how much we have been shaped by this world's way of thinking, sometimes we can hop the rails as Christians And we can begin to run along tracks that aren't in the likeness of Jesus at all and not even be aware of it. Let me risk sharing an observation here. This is especially for those of you who were born and raised in the United States. I recently uh, finished reading Jeff Scherer's wonderful two-volume history of the American Revolution. I think it would be accurate to sum up the birth narrative of the United States in this way. It began when a burden was placed on the shoulders of the colonists that they didn't think was fair. 
So they went to those in charge and they insisted that their rights be represented in those governing bodies. When they were refused, they rebelled against the government that was over them. They declared themselves independent and they fought for their rights and for their freedoms against the British whose claims over them they rejected. It's a narrative that centers on rights and freedoms. Contrast that to the birth narrative of the Christian church, which is captured uh, at its probably most eloquent in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 and following. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The New Living Version says he did not hold to his rights as God. Rather, by making himself nothing, or rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. His was a different sort of revolution, revolting against the rights and freedoms-based, self-at-the-center way of life that comes naturally to all of us as fallen human beings. Jesus laid down his rights and freedoms, considering others more important than himself, and putting others first at cost to himself, And then he invited us Christians, us little Christs, that's what the word means, to pattern our lives after his. As we've walked through this long COVID season, I found myself watching people's responses and wondering, which birth narrative are we living out of? Travis brought a really helpful phrase to our lead team. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not calling into question any aspect of our country or its origin or what it means to be a faithful American citizen. But I am asking which narrative has the greatest hold on our imaginations? Which narrative is most determinative of our root identity? Which narrative has the most shaping power in our lives? How would you answer that question in your own life? Here's what's true. Whether we are from the U.S. or elsewhere, all of us have places in our lives where we are still more concerned with our own rights and freedoms than we are with the call of God or with the need of a neighbor. One of the most moving pieces of poetry in the English language is the sonnet that was written by John Donne in which knowing that he so often resisted the very thing that he most deeply desired, He invites God to lay siege to his own independent and rebellious heart and to bring it back under God's loving rule. And I found this to be such a wonderful prayer to pray when I know that I'm holding parts of my life back from God. Here's how it goes. It's the original Shattercone prayer. I invite you to pray it with me this morning as I read it. Batter my heart, three-personed God, For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. 
I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. I began this message by describing one metaphor of how a life is transformed by Jesus, like a rock from heaven that alters the very nature of the rocks that it collides with here on earth. I want to close with another metaphor for how our lives are transformed by Jesus, one that is much more intimate and gentle and relational and personal. You may remember that a few years ago, I invited Gail Johnston to come up here and to sit on the platform. She's an artist from our congregation and to bring her potter's wheel up and to form a picture during my message. And then after that message, I interviewed Gail and I asked her to describe what she was doing. And that was when she described the ideas of the wheel, the well, and the wall. And those have stayed with me ever since that conversation. I think this is absolutely just a stunning way for us to think our, about our own lives before God. She explained that a potter begins by centering the clay on the wheel, a crucial and, she said, a rather difficult task. One that, if not done just right, will cause the potter to have to fight with that piece of clay from that point on. Once centered, two other tasks remain, the well and the wall. The well is the hollowed out center of the piece, without which, of course, it's worthless as a cup or a bowl or a dish because it is incapable of holding anything. Gail empties the clay of itself, spreading it out, opening it up, pressing the base out into a shape designed to receive and hold. And then she starts pulling up the wall, tugging the low, thick, hollow, that hollow of clay with her fingertips. She begins to, to raise it up into beauty and usefulness, forming its sides. I start to pull up the wall by putting pressure on the inside and the outside of the wall at the same time, pressing the outside lower than the inside so that the clay is pinched between my fingertips and then stretched upwards. Then again and again, she stretches that wall up until it finally takes the desired shape. It's still the same lump of clay that she began with. Nothing has been added, nothing has been subtracted, but it has been transformed by the potter's touch into a vessel suited to the master's use. Isaiah chapter 64 says, you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Think of the many passages, some of which we've talked about this morning, that describe this same sort of work of new creation that God intends to do in us. How he takes hold of us when we are a spiritually inert lump of clay, how he centers our lives on Christ. And then in an act that makes us both beautiful and useful, he presses down the well and he pulls up the wall, emptying us of self and filling us with himself that we might be of use to him. Could this be the central work of God in a Christian's soul? Centering our lives on him, 
hollowing out the center to make room for him, and then raising us up into a Jesus-shaped life that pleases him, reflects his touch, and serves his ends? I think so. What do you think? Would you pray with me? Worship team, come on up. Jesus, gentle and humble in heart, form your heart of humility in us, we pray.